0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. Sometimes I yell that welcome really loudly because I haven't turned the volume up enough on my headphones. Just a little tidbit for you guys there. We're going to talk about you probably probably now that I've got my uh, equipment that I use every day, day in and day out, figured out we can talk about the news (laughs) Uh, and a lot of it. Uh, It was about the war in Ukraine, where uh, for the moment, at least, things are not looking very good for uh, for Russia. Russian forces appear to have lost thousands of kilometers of territory in a retreat that some Russian officials are saying was tactical and planned, Uh, but that doesn't. Appear that way to a lot of people who are much closer to the fighting no, than we are.
1: The um the reporting, at least in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, was was very specific. It said that there were Russian troops fleeing on stolen bicycles, on foot, hitching rides, just anything they could do to to get out of mm-hmm. some of these uh, these war zones. Yes.
0: So we are going to talk about what is going on uh, and, and how to understand it and also how much we can. You know, we've said from the beginning, the information battle is a really serious one in in, in this war. So uh, yeah, how really much is. how much we can really understand. But not to say it definitely was not a good weekend uh, for Russia, a very good weekend for Ukraine. We're going to talk more about Donald Trump's battle with the Justice Department and uh, maybe talk about, I don't know if we are going to get an answer over the course of the day as to why he came to D.C. in something of a hurry.
1: You know, the the fascinating thing about this trip to D.C. for me, and it it's probably nothing, but it's just me, mm-hmm. is he was seen getting off this private jet at Dulles Airport last night uh, wearing his golf cleats. So. The speculation is that he either came in such a hurry that he couldn't, he didn't have time to change his shoes, mm-hmm. which seems kind of crazy to me. Um, or he was coming to go to his golf club in Loudon County. I, I I don't know. Golfing on the plane. Uh, golfing on the plane. Couple holes. In it's there? it seems very odd that somebody who's as avid a golfer as Donald Trump. Uh, is, wouldn't change his shoes. Why did he come here in such a hurry?
0: Maybe we'll find out. We will see. We are going to ask. We're going to talk a little bit more about immigration. Uh, as the U.S. admits, more than a million people legally to await asylum hearings. And Texas adds more cities to its migrant busing destinations. We are going to talk later on the show about efforts to... Free Leonard Peltier and what the U.N. has to say about his decades long imprisonment. Yeah. I will give you a clue as to what they have to say. They say you should be let go. Yeah. They say you should be let go and given the opportunity to seek uh, a compensation and reparations you know, for.
1: There are a lot of examples of um, of injustices in our prison system. I'm hard pressed to think of a bigger one than this. I mean, the, the Department of Justice has known for years That he is not guilty of the things that he was convicted of of doing. And I mean, there was a a move afoot in 2009 for Barack Obama to uh, to commute his sentence at the very least. Yeah. Give him a pardon, maybe. And here we are all these years later. And he is still in prison. And now he has very serious health uh, problems as well.
0: Yeah. So we are going to talk about that and uh, talk to some of the people who are organizing uh, that walk that we mentioned last week to Washington to advocate for his case. We'll talk about where we are in terms of a new nuclear deal with Iran, which appears to still be nowhere, even after all these months of negotiation. We are going to get into how we should interpret these election results in Sweden. We're going to talk a little bit about why some 9-11 photos are still censored after all this time. And uh, I can tell you a little bit of a story that some people online noticed uh, yesterday, which is, of course, uh, the 9-11 anniversary. Um, Remember Ari Fleischer? Sure do. Ari Fleischer, uh, George Bush press secretary. Uh, He... So Twitter didn't exist on 9/11. Right. Uh, I think it. I think what it was. Twitter it was 2006. Something. Like it that. launched. Six or something, seven. Yep. something like that. And shortly afterward, Ari Fleischer began a, a yearly commemoration of 9/11 by live tweeting his recollection of events that day, because he was, as he as he has said numerous times, he was by George Bush's side, and so he would he would do this live tweeting thing. Where he would go through the day, and he said, uh, he said in the past he's you know he, he was always astonished by how much attention the tweets got, and he did it uh, every year for for about a decade. He didn't lo- do it last year because he was at the nine eleven memorial. This year, he decided uh, that he he says tweeting yesterday he said tomorrow I must be on an airplane. I won't be able to live tweet my memories of what took place. In all cases, I've decided that my story has been told and I will not live tweet what took place on 911 again. It's exhausting to relive the day. It wears me down. Uh and where is it his um yes, there is nothing new to say or reveal. <laughs> now it's time to let it rest, okay? Right. So that's whatever Ari Fleischer had a decade of uh sort of 911 wallowing, I think it's it's fair to say. Uh, people have pointed out that his decision to retire this practice follows by a couple of months um, his hiring <laughs> by Saudi Arabia <laughs> to be a, a lobbyist, a communications consultant for Live Golf, the big Saudi-backed competitor to the PGA. So, you know, did Ari Fleischer just get she- tired of reliving his uh, moment of glory there on nine eleven? I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit unkind to him. Or is this because he's just been hired by the uh, country that definitely (laughs) definitely had a part? I don't think you're being unkind.
1: Um, First of all, he's taking Saudi money and being a White House insider. He knows how dirty the Saudis were and how they were implicated in the 9-11 attacks up to their necks. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, uh, he follows the news as well as everybody else does. He knows what this Gulf... uh, League or tournament or whatever it is, is all about and how Tiger Woods turned down $800 million on principle Mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't be beholden to the Saudis. Number three, uh, again, being a White House insider in those years, where was Ari Fleischer when Saudi intelligence officers with connections to the 9-11 hijackers were visiting the Bush Ranch at Crawford, Texas. Why have we never gotten an explanation as to what they were doing there? We sound you know? like a conspiracy theorist. And, and where's the? T- and what about the twenty eight pages? Uh huh. So no, yeah, a lot of questions. A lot of uh, questions. You know, Tiger
0: Woods is already a rich man, and I'm sure Ari Fleischer is out there uh, panhandling, right? right? So listen, right. can't fault a man for trying to provide for his family. Poor destitute Ari Fleischer <laughs> having to uh, communications consult. For all comers. Yeah. So that was a little bit of a, a jolly little 9-11 uh, yeah. Internet yeah. story there. Um, I have some other uh, tidbits to get to before we actually start the show and bring on our first guest. Uh, the State Department on Friday released its plans for refugee admissions for 2023. And there are just some interesting figures. We don't talk about this very much. And I thought it was, you know, it. A good opportunity to actually take a look at what we try to do, promise to do and do do when it comes to refugee admissions. Uh, This is according to CBS News, which says it has reviewed the State Department's proposal. Uh, The Biden administration is keeping its cap or threshold, however you want to view it, uh, of up to one hundred and twenty five thousand refugees. Sounds like, oh, that's, a you know, kind of a big number that by no means represents the number of people who are actually resettled in a number of different ways. Right. Um, it allocated one hundred and twenty five thousand spots for last fiscal year, but actually resettled fewer than 20,000 refugees in the first 11 months of 2022. This is according to the State Department. So that's fewer than 20,000 refugees who fit this particular criteria. however. Outside of this criteria, and this is according to the, the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, who spoke to Voice of America for a story. But she says more than 70,000 Afghans and about 60,000 Ukrainians have entered the U.S. on something that's called humanitarian parole. And so those numbers are not counted toward the actual refugee figure. So it's a sort of mess of numbers, right? right. We, we are, I mean, falling I way, that. way short of, the, you know, the, the number of people we actually commit to resettle, which I think is not new. I think that happens all the time. But you have these other categories of people who aren't included in that, which I think is sort of
1: very interesting.
0: Yes. So we'll see. Um, uh, the CEO of U- Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services says resettlement nonprofits have stepped up to assist them. Uh, the other thing that I didn't know. And we are going to talk about this later in the show with our guest. But so the Biden administration has this year admitted uh, a million asylum seekers legally. So they they come into the country. Their cases are sort of processed in an initial way. And then they are released legally into the U.S. to wait for their hearings. They don't get any more federal aid after that. Right. So that goes all to states and communities. Work. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, you know, I do think there are some some very serious questions to be asked about who— Who is being asked to uh, contribute to the maintenance uh, and and uh, care of people who are here legally awaiting, you know, awaiting a decision on their fate and where that money should come from? Should it come from states and municipalities who have limited funds or should it come from the federal government, which has at least a much, much bigger and more flexible budget, if even if you don't agree with the mmt theory and they they actually can just make the money if they need it so i think i think that that's an interesting question to get into and one that kind of gets ignored in our usual discussions of immigration yes. and its political um intricacies
1: i'm uh, looking forward also to talking uh with our with our guest about uh about these busloads of um of immigrants being sent to places like New York and Chicago. You mentioned and in now the maybe intro, Philadelphia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You mentioned in the intro that, uh, that there are other cities that, uh, that the governors of Texas and Arizona are going to be sending people to. Mm-hmm. Um, this is becoming kind of a, a big nationwide story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I look forward to um, hearing their views.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you want some crime news? John? Always. Uh, Contradictory crime news, Uh, according to this is results from the Major Cities Chiefs Association, which is a professional organization of police executives. So this data represents urban centers, 70 urban centers responding to this survey. The number of homicides and rapes in major U.S. cities has dipped slightly in the first half of 2022. But overall, violent crime is up. So violent crime is up four point four percent. but Homicide and rape both dropped by 2% and 5% respectively. Good. Yeah. So kind of sounds like, I don't, I'm not going to try to extensively interpret crime statistics, but so- sounds like what you might see in a population that is struggling economically. Yes. Right. Although also this dip comes after murder rates rose 30% between 2019 and 2020, right. which I think is, you know, a lot of people losing their minds during the COVID pandemic That's, and maybe killing domestic partners, yeah, killing people the, they were trapped with. Right. Yeah,
1: that was the conventional wisdom.
0: Yes. So if they have fallen down from that 30 percent increase, that would still be a pretty high murder rate if, you, if you're if you looking at trends over the last like four or five years. I thought that was interesting. And then another um, issue that we didn't talk about uh, that came up in the last couple of weeks is life expectancy for the US down in the again? last 10 days. Yeah, down again down below China's by a full year, I think, was what caused some headlines last week. Yeah, uh COVID-19 is uh being called the biggest driver of it, accounting for half of the decline that's according to the CDC. And then second is unintentional injuries, which is a category that would include opioid overdoses and uh car accidents. But uh, opioid overdoses every year It's a new record. So like, of course, that is going to start dragging down Mm -hmm. life expectancy. Also, man, if the murder rate increased by 30 percent, you might think, I mean, I don't know. At what point does that start dragging down life expectancy? So, yeah, it's down to what is it? It's down to 76.1 years at birth right now. This is according to an article in Quartz. Uh, And yeah, China now um, a full year, more life expectancy.
1: Full year. Pretty wild. That is pretty wild. We need to get a hold on our, uh, our fentanyl problem in this country.
0: Yeah, and maybe get people some uh, preventative health care. That's right. Maybe, maybe uh, get people some insulin that they don't have to ration, which yeah. is actually, I think, a, good, a piece of good news that is happening today. Uh, I think that I'm going to double check this, but I think there may be good news on insulin today. Oh, good. But yeah, get people the ability to treat some of the illnesses they have before they become emergencies that are going to shorten their lives feel like that would be good uh i think we can take a break now all right back to talk about some foreign policy issues before we dip back into public health later in the week you're listening to political misfits on radio sputnik we are live in dc and we'll be right back
2: Welcome back to
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witty. The Western media is awash today with front page above the fold headlines that the Russian military is in retreat in northern, eastern and southern Ukraine. The Washington Post is reporting that Russian soldiers are dropping their weapons and fleeing areas previously occupied by Russia in any way that they can on stolen bicycles, on foot and in private vehicles. The New York Times says that the Russian collapse has been so rapid that a Chechen leader allied with Moscow says he will complain to to President Vladimir Putin about the country's military strategy and that the Russian military, quote, appears to be stunned, unquote, with the quickness of the collapse. But the Russian military says that this was a strategic retreat that had been planned in advance. Meanwhile, pro-Putin candidates swept victory in municipal elections in Russia over the weekend. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. Mark is an international affairs and military analyst, and we're always glad to have him. Welcome,
3: Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show.
1: We're glad to have you. The the Western media, Mark, today is very dramatic in its account of what it's describing as a complete turnaround in the war, and a very rapid one at that. We're hearing that the Russians are in retreat in the north, the east, and the south. You've been right about this war so far. What can you tell us? What what exactly is happening on the ground and why is it happening?
3: Okay, so um, over the last five or so months of the conflict, you know, since about a month in what the Kiev regime has been doing is it has massively it it mobilized. Right. It um, called up a lot of volunteers, but it also started forced conscription um, and it is. Uh, undergone the process of putting hundreds of thousands of people uh, into military service, right? I mean, they have literally closed the borders for anyone between them, any male between the ages of 16 to 60. They have to bribe their way to get out of the country, um, and it appears that they have been fairly and fairly successful in that. All things considering, uh, this has been assisted, of course, by a large amount of Western uh, arms. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the high Mars, right? Um, I mean, right. yeah, uh, uh, 16 high Mars, about half of which may be left. Okay, yeah, that helps. Um, but particularly the M777 howitzers, the um, uh, uh, the 155 millimeter howitzers that the NATO, US and other NATO countries have provided, and particularly a large number of uh, t- refurbished T-72 tanks from Poland um, and other post-Soviet countries um, that the Ukraine can make very good use of because they they know how to use it. They can repair it. Uh, they can maintain it. They have some parts for it, unlike all of this other mismatched NATO gear. Uh, and along with that, a large number of Infantry fighting vehicles as well. And they have shepherded this over Mm -hmm. the last seven or so months um, or sorry, five months, five months, uh, only putting about 30 percent of it into combat in the east where the majority of the combat is taken and and building up a counteroffensive force. Mm -hmm. Now, they have hit on a new strategy, right, trying to put troops into the face of the main Russian military force grinding its way through extensive fortifications in the Donbass, uh, is, is not a winning card. Uh, they saw that not, they don't want to take the Russian military on head on. So what they did is they came up with a strategy and we now know that this has been planned and war gamed out by the Pentagon. um, uh, they, they they've been the Western media, CNN, and others have been pretty open about this of a strategy of using their advantage, which is a big manpower advantage. Right. And the reason they have a big manpower advantage is because Russia has limited this military intervention. They call it a special military operation to just one hundred and fifty thousand of its one million active duty troops and two million reserves. 150,000 troops to invade a country of 35 million, right, or at least to intervene in the ongoing civil conflict there. This is buttressed by about forty to 50,000 East Ukrainians from the Donbass and, and elsewhere who are fighting, uh, you know, also to overthrow the West-backed regime in Kiev. So uh, Kiev claims to have a million-man army now. That's that's an exaggeration. But we should consider that they probably have close to six hundred thousand when all is taken into account. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, when you count in the police, National Guard and everything else. Um, And that alone is a more than three to one advantage over what Russia has in the field. Russia has taken a large amount of territory in the south, Kherson and Zaporozhye, very quickly in the beginning of the conflict, and also uh, in the north, in the Kharkov region. Um, and But they've kept the main of their forces grinding through Kiev regime fortifications that they built up over eight years in the east, in the Donbass. So these outside areas have been held very lightly, right? very small garrisons, mm-hmm. local militias, and so forth. The U.S. came up with a strategy to use their manpower advantage and uh, Russia's manpower disadvantage and basically attack multiple areas in quick succession or simultaneously with large numbers of rapidly moving mechanized infantry and, and essentially mass human wave attacks, cannon fodder. It's a strategy that requires the Kiv regime to accept losing Large numbers of casualties to Russian fires, to artillery, rocket systems, and aviation. But they're perfectly willing to do that. In Kherson, it did not work because Russia mm. had concentrated a significant force to defend there, uh, including their own defenses that they built up over the last month or so, um, along with heavy artillery, aviation, and the like. They concentrated enough forces there. But in Kharkov, they did not. And we it's becoming a little bit clearer why now. Russia simply doesn't have enough manpower. Their intervention force is not big enough to continue the offensive in the east and hold the territory they've taken against the concentrated uh, attacks in multiple areas at the same time. Their, their heavy fires, their artillery aviation advantages being run exhausted, trying to put out fires everywhere at the same time. It's an effective strategy for defeating the Russian fires heavy battalion tactical groups. And in Harkov it worked. Um, It seems that there is an even larger counteroffensive coming in the southeast from Ugladar towards Mariupol. There's a large tank buildup uh, of the Kiev regime that has been spotted there. um, And they have begun removing the defensive minefields that they laid there several months ago already, obviously moving to an attack. Russia basically had to make a decision. Do we defend the north? or the Southeast, right? The North, right. the South, and the Southeast. They decided to defend the Southeast and the South and to abandon the North. And we now know that it appears that Russia was indeed fairly quietly moving what few defensive troops they had out of Kharkov over the last week. When Kiev went in there over the weekend, there was maybe some 1,200 Russian troops for that entire large front area in the Kharkov. And most of those were Roskvardia, which is the equivalent of the National Guard, some local militias, and some older veteran volunteers. Um, They were... The whole, the, the stay behind guard. They were the last one manning the forts, um, and so they were quickly overrun by uh, Kiev regime by first an armored fist, uh, then sending th- uh, fast moving diversion and reconnaissance groups basically arching through that territory, avoiding what little resistance there was in urban centers and just enveloping them with mechanized infantry moving in behind. And they just swept all of this. The Russian forces fought a few small holding actions to allow some civilian evacuation. Not enough of it. Um, But um, uh, other than that, they largely got out of there. There were a few of these stand-behind forces that were caught behind Right. Taken prisoners of war. Uh, some of them killed. Uh, but it was a relatively small force. And while Russia has been building up its reserves, they're not sending them to Kharkov. They're on the move, but they're on the move to the south, to uh, to the southeast, towards Mariupol to confront what is probably going to be a much bigger and decisive battle in the next week or two. Uh-huh. That is why Russia you. Now, the cost of all of this is to the East Ukrainian people, because the Kiev regime has already announced filtration of all the new areas. The neo-Nazi battalions are going in um, and they're going to cleanse, as they call it, all the traitors and collaborators, anyone and uh, who cooperated with the Russians. And according to new Kiev regime laws they've put into force, anyone who accepts humanitarian aid from Russians is a collaborator. Anyone who has a Russian passport, dual citizen, is a collaborator. Um, You know, basically anyone who made a social media post positive about Russian forces is a collaborator. The best thing they can hope for is by the new code, 15 years in prison for taking food from a Russian humanitarian aid. Wow! But we all know, let's be frank, that they're mostly going to end up shot in the back of the head because that's what Kraken and Azov. Um, And these other neo-Nazi formations that are armed and funded by the Kiev regime do. We've seen a lot of that in Bucha and elsewhere. And invariably, they they, they will then say, "Oh, we came in and found these people dead, and the Russian forces did it when they were." That that's that is the cost, and it is a big cost because now elsewhere in eastern Ukraine the the people there that were beginning to trust that russian forces are there to stay and protect them their biggest fear is is coming home that the banderites will return like they've promised mm-hmm. to and uh, that is a big trust barrier that has been broken, and there will be a political cost both in Ukraine, in in eastern Ukraine, and domestically at home for the government. There is a lot of hawkish sentiment right now, uh, criticizing the government for for having this manpower uh, uh, disadvantage to begin with by limiting the intervention force to percent of the Russian military and not even calling up the Russian reserves while the Kiev regime has fully mo- uh, mobilized and conscripted yes. the entire country. So um, it, it is Russia had a cold blooded strategy. They saved their forces from a fight they couldn't win to win a fight that is more important to them. Right. They were outmaneuvered. In the last month or so, and they had to sacrifice one of the regions that they have held on to because they simply don't have the manpower to hold on to all of it at the same time when there is uh, these large scale counteroffensives coming in multiple directions at once.
1: Mark, one of the things that we're not seeing in the in the Western press is any mention at all of Crimea. I haven't even heard any mention of Crimea from the Ukrainians what do you think the message is there
3: oh i mean they actually are continually talking about it they're continually promising to take it back, to take it back. this will and yeah that they will this will end with the taking back of the crimea and all of the donbass they're continually promising this i mean actually the uh the kiev regimes uh, uh political advisors aristovich uh, and podilok posted a doctored a a a crudely photoshopped image on their social media today uh, talking about uh, a couple months in the future when they will have the Russian leaders uh, serving them tea in Red Square. Oh, my. Okay. That they they think that they have now declared that this only ends with the the complete surrender and the demilitarization of Russia. Uh The UK, Uh, which is. Sorry. Pretty ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is pretty ridiculous. It is delusional.
1: The UK Defense Ministry uh today tweeted a very detailed analysis of the situation on the ground. Um I've pasted it here. It says, in the face of Ukrainian advances, Russia has likely ordered the withdrawal of its troops from the entirety of occupied Kharkiv oblast west of the Oskil yes. River. Uh, isolated pockets, et cetera, et cetera. In the south near yep. Kyrgyzstan, uh, Russia is likely struggling to bring sufficient reserves forward across the Dnipro River on the front line. An improvised That's floating bridge uh, <laughs> that they started to build over two weeks ago remains incomplete. Um, Ukrainian long-range artillery is now probably hitting crossings of the Dnipro so frequently that Russia cannot carry out repairs. Um, yeah, is true. that true?
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean, they look at um For the Kiev regime forces to move into the area they've been attacking, they also have to cross a river the Ingolitz River, and they had to build pontoons and ferries. And both right. sides yes. are facing a logistical disadvantage as they're both blowing apart each other's pontoons for the Ukrainians, yes. for the Russian forces across the Dnieper, and for the Russians, for the the regime forces across the Ingolitz River. That's an even draw. And the Russian defenses and the heavy amount of artillery, rocket systems, and aviation they have prepared there. They chose to defend. They built defenses, they amassed forces, and Herson has been a meat grinder for Kiev. Yeah. They even the Washington Post has admitted that the a town and a half, the hamlet and a half that they managed to take after two weeks in that area has cost them probably tens of thousands of troops, like, like over over 20,000 more likely when we're counting killed and injured. Uh, it, it is a, a horrific. That is a complete catastrophe for Kiev. But it did tie up forces that could have been used elsewhere. And there we have the problem that Russia couldn't defend everywhere uh, at once. They have, they did effectively defend Kherson and inflict massive casualties on the Kiev regime forces in the process. In Kharkov, they inflicted some casualties as they retreated out But they retreated out largely, you know, planned in good order to use those forces elsewhere to what is probably going to be a bigger counteroffensive that we will see in coming days in the southeast. Now, I think that a large purpose of the Kharkov offensive from the Kiev military's perspective was to tie up Russia's reserves Instead, Russia evacuated everything they have. They didn't even send in the reserves. Now Kiev has to make a decision. Do they go forward with this big armored fist push up in the southeast, knowing they're going to face much more disadvantage Right. Uh, Or do they settle for what they've already gained in Harkov for now, which is basically a bunch of villages and hamlets. They didn't Mm -hmm. take any major urban uh, settlement. The Izum was was the most important that will make it logistically more difficult for Russia to finish in the Donbass. That is a significant strategic loss, that one uh, particular uh, logistically important settlement issue. Russia fought hard to take that through April. Uh, So that is a definite setback. Russia thinks that they can militarily can sacrifice now the rest of the Kharkov. But in my opinion, and a lot of Russian analysts and political figures speaking forward now, is Russia needs to take the kid gloves off. They need to expand the intervention force beyond the 150,000 out of 1 million active duty troops. They need to conduct a partial call-up of the reserves, and they need to at least double – if not triple the intervention force in there, because now this has become a total war, not just against Kiev, but against all of NATO. And it is not going to end until they remove the regime in Kiev. And to do that, they have to take and hold territory. And they can't do that with just 150,000 troops, no matter how well equipped they are.
1: That that leads to the third point that the British Defense Ministry made in this tweet. It says the rapid Ukrainian successes have significant implications for Russia's overall operational design. The majority of the force in Ukraine is highly likely being forced to prioritize emergency defensive actions. The already limited trust deployed troops have in Russia's senior military leadership is likely to deteriorate further. Do you do you think that's true? Um, provided that the Russian Defense Ministry does not commit more troops to the conflict,
3: that is the kind of statement uh, you know that is uh, true to a degree, but to a very small degree. Okay, Russia. You know, I mean, even over the weekend, Russia was continuing to make their grinding, incremental advances around Bakhmut and so forth. So they still haven't stopped their main offensive. Uh, yes, this is a little bit the this is disheartening, right? They know they're sacrificing some East Ukrainian civilians to the Banderite battalions. Mm -hmm. They know that they fought hard to take Izum in particular, and it it is a big uh, propaganda, a big psychological victory. But I think that the morale loss is far more important for the people of East Ukraine than it is for the Russian military forces. That bit is Exaggerated, shall we say it, there is a bit of truth there, but not as much as they would like there to be uh,
1: I want to ask you we've got about four minutes left. I want to ask you about this election in Sweden over the weekend uh it's very, very close the The Washington Post says that it appears that the the right wing um, opposition has won, but the New York Times says it's still too close to call they're saying that um The right is going to have to enter into a coalition with the far right in order to build a a working government. Uh, But we're not really going to know who's won until foreign ballots are counted and mail-in ballots are counted. But my question to you is, does any of this really matter in terms of the international scene? Will there be any change in Swedish foreign policy or policy regarding NATO accession if the right-wing opposition, uh, forms a government,
3: some international effects. Sure. With a right-wing government, Sweden is likely to have less ambitious climate goals.
1: Oh, that's a good that's point. About it.
3: That's, but that's about, I mean, in the big scale of things, considering joining NATO, the conflict in, uh, in, uh, Ukraine, uh, no, it's not going to have any change. If anything, the the right might be even more hawkish, uh, the, particularly, the the Swedish far right has a number of neo Nazis oh, yeah. fighting in Ukraine with like Michael oh, sure. Skillet, uh, who is the, one of the most prominent ones. But uh, there there are uh, many others as well who are fighting with the Kiev regime forces. There have been there since 2014, so it's not going to change that much bigger issue. But there are a few things, uh, small things. It's certainly going to principally change their migration policy, which is what. the the rights, you know, um, recent popularity has all to do with um, uh, Swedish um, discontent over a very liberal uh, immigration policy that has brought people from Africa and the Middle East in that aren't assimilating Shall we say, as well as has been hoped, and uh, there is significant evidence that a large amount of of um, it has resulted in a significant rise in crime and other yes. social problems. I've
1: got a I've got a Swedish friend who happens to be um, an immigrant from uh, from Syria, and uh, she was actively recruited by the uh, by the Stockholm police because, of course, she speaks Arabic and. They need people to reach out to these immigrant communities that don't feel like they're Swedish and don't feel like they've been accepted into Swedish society. And she said that even though she's a, I mean, officially she's a police officer, she feels more like a social worker because that's really what her, what her job is now, is just trying to make people feel welcome and make them feel like they're actually a part of society. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Mark Sloboda, who is always one of our our best informed guests. And it's always a pleasure having you. Uh, You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back. So stay tuned.
0: Two Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriakou, and we're talking a little bit more about immigration and, and how the Biden administration is responding. I have not seen very much from them. No. Uh, to Texas and Arizona expanding their program of busing migrants from the southern border to larger northern cities, expanding to Chicago. Uh, there's talks about Philadelphia. And honestly, I'm a little bit surprised that the Biden administration is sort of letting these these cities go it uh, on their own. At least it appears to be because, you know, it doesn't seem like it would really support their talk about wanting to be a more humane and receptive country to migrants if uh, they're not going to put their money where their mouth is. So we're going to ask uh, what what the consequences of this program have been and what the federal government can and should be doing here with our guest. We're joined by Maru Mora Villalpando. She's founder of La Resistencia. She's an immigrant activist. Maru, thanks for being here again. Thank you for the invitation. So Texas Governor Greg Abbott, for the first time a little over a week ago, sent migrants from the U.S. southern border to Chicago. This is part of his campaign to bus migrants to northern cities and in particular to sanctuary cities to make a political point about what Texas experiences as a border state. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said this is a manufactured crisis on the part of Governor Abbott. Uh, It is also true, though, that New York City's social safety net is straining, that the D.C. mayor, Muriel Bowser, has twice cried to call in the National Guard to help her city agencies manage the thousands of migrants who have come to D.C. since April, and that in the Chicago area already, you have local officials saying, this is chaotic, we didn't get enough warning, we've gotten no direction as to what we're supposed to do. And so opponents of more relaxed immigration policies are finding quite a lot to crow about in how these cities have been able to respond to what is a fraction of the migrants that Texas and Arizona receive. And so I want to ask to start, you know, what do you think about how, how New York, D.C. and Chicago so far are responding and how they've been talking about this program?
4: I think it's uh, great that the Chicago mayor uh, called it like it is. It is a manufactured crisis. Um, by the governor's um, a political team that is trying to get him to run for president. Um, definitely, I think that it's important to understand how Texas actually runs in regards to these uh, supposed uh, crises, right? They receive themselves. First of all, it is a, a, a border state. And the, how people cross the border is up to the federal state. It's not up to Texas. And let me tell you, I've been in Texas, I've been in El Paso, and uh, a couple of years ago, before, uh, before all, uh, even before COVID, uh, U.S. Uh, Customs and Border Patrol was doing this already of um, getting a lot of people detained and then releasing them in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. And people in Texas already, in El Paso, grassroots organizations were already taking care of that. They are experts on running uh, shelters. It wasn't like the government of, of Texas was dealing with any of this. It was the grassroots organizations. Mm-hmm. That they knew that the federal government was releasing hundreds of people at the, same, at, the, at the time to make it impossible for them to actually fight for a fair uh, immigration system where people can actually come, not in the hundreds and not being released in the hundreds all of the sudden, but to have a, a, a steady flow of people. With an uh, infrastructure, a, bu- a bureaucracy that is um, set already in place, and so when uh, Abbott says that they're dealing with all of this, is not true. It is the grassroots organizations that are doing that now. The governments um, in these other places, I think they should also learn from the grassroots organizations how they have handled this in the first place. But yes, it is important to get a response from the Biden administration that is being too quiet in regards to this issue.
0: And what does it mean? I mean, yeah, this is exactly what you see in a lot of these stories in in D.C., in New York, that it is not um, any government agency that is really managing uh, uh, the, the, you know, processing, resettling, supporting, whatever, uh, these migrants. that it is nonprofit organizations and grassroots organizations. But it seems to me that just because they are doing uh, an admirable job— seems to me that this should properly probably be the role of, of government agencies. And, you know, we we talked earlier on the show about the Biden administration, um, it, the refugee threshold that it had announced for this year. And it said one of the reasons I mean, I don't know if this is true, but one of the reasons given for why the actual number of refugees resettled was so much lower than the cap is that most of the work of doing this resettlement goes to nonprofits and and non-governmental organizations. And when the Trump administration dropped that cap way down, uh, you know, these organizations had to lay people off. A lot of them closed and they have to build back up. But it seems like on one hand, it's it's great that grassroots organizations are doing this work. But why are they doing this work?
4: Absolutely. I think that, um, again, it's it's been a, a game that the uh, Border Patrol has played. Uh, Specifically at the southern border, sure that the grassroots efforts locally don't fight for a long term change from the into crisis. So, uh, we actually had a a call with one of those uh, activists at the border, the other, and she's seen how um, Border Patrol and ICE are releasing people at the border and they have to deal with that. And they they actually made up. uh Home addresses for people that um you know in order for them to release anybody from detention people have to have a, a home address where to go to and she she would ask uh, you know what is this address do you live here and people would say, you know I don't know what that, what that address is and they would look them up and there was no such a uh, such an address and so there's these tactics that they, the the Patrol is doing right now to create also they're part of this crisis right they are the the in general the politics of of the United States in regards to people that are coming to the southern border are precisely to create this this crisis. They're not really solving what Trump started. They're not there yet, uh, and Border Patrol keeps this culture of uh, being against people of color, a uh, very xenophobic uh, and racist culture, and so they just feed this crisis for everybody. But like you said, and, and like I mentioned. Um, It's really up to local people in the border areas to respond to this and to solve it, and that's not what it should be.
0: And so you're saying the Border Patrol is actually detaining people, and then instead of sort of processing them through uh, federal channels, it's just releasing them to exacerbate this crisis? Yes, and they have for many years now. Wild. Uh, I want to ask also about uh, what happens to the people who go legally through this process uh, to seek asylum. The New York Times had a story last week about where some of the more than one million asylum seekers who have been allowed into the U.S. are staying. Uh, And the story begins in Portland, Maine. Maine is an area that allows asylum seekers to receive financial support for rent and other expenses uh, through some state programs it has. But in May, apparently, officials in Portland announced that the city could no longer guarantee shelter for any newly arrived asylum seekers because emergency housing was at capacity. And the story points out that these asylum seekers who, again, they have come, they have been processed, they have been legally released into the United States, but they can't work uh, and they are now waiting for a final decision on their case, they don't get any federal assistance once they're uh, uh, released. So, you know, uh, they are going to be dependent to some degree on state and local help. And state and local help is far more limited than the federal budget is. State and local help is not, in a lot of cases, I think, really adequate to the needs of U.S. citizens who are there. And so I feel like it feeds into the idea that there isn't enough to go around, you know, and we can't let more people into the country. And it does. Again, I, I come back to this idea of I'm astounded continually at how limited the federal government's role in, is in in some of this and, and what they're doing. So I wanted to ask you about that.
4: Yeah, well, let's start by the fact that the federal government should be giving uh, work permits to people because that's the basics of surviving in the United States. Uh, but let's also understand that what the localities and the states have is based on many, like I'm going to give an example here in Washington. Uh, Washington state doesn't have income tax. Yet we have the biggest corporations, you know, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so, yeah, there is not enough capacity for, for even U.S. citizens. But that's based because the states have decided how to run their budgets. have decided to prioritize not, um, allowing no taxes for the wealthy whereas everybody else pay a lot in taxes. I pay taxes, you know, and undocumented people pay taxes. So this idea that there's not enough for everybody should be understood in the basis of the United States is always prioritizing the wealthy, Why we don't have enough services for people that um, are U.S. citizens. But even non-U.S. citizens that provide to the um, tax system doesn't have access to that very unfair system in the first place. And 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 yes, the states will have a problem on housing refugees if they continue prioritizing the wealthy. At the same time, the federal government not responding with the basics of just providing a work permit to people that they themselves allow to come into the country. And who,
0: of course, we need to come into the country and exactly. work. Exactly. Yes. Um, I also wanted to ask you, Maru, John reminded me this morning, I... Uh, about the the impact of 9 11 and our war on terror on immigration, uh, John mentioned this. I went and sort of looked looked up a little bit more. But in the year before the September 11th attacks in 2001, President George Bush and Mexican President Vicente Fox, the presidents at the time, had been negotiating migration policies and seemed to be really close on an agreement about uh, about. Beginning regularization processes for undocumented Mexicans in the United States and also to really raise the number of temporary guest workers allowed in the United States, which seems to me, again, to be like kind of a no brainer, Uh, not necessarily when it comes to immigration from uh, Central America, necessarily of people who are fleeing violence, but for people who want to be able to come and work seasonally and leave, you know, that seemed to be, uh, as I said, a no brainer. All of these negotiations were derailed by the chaos after 9-11. The U.S. embarked on a much more draconian state security policy. And then even years later, after the uproar died down, those policies remained in place and, and this immigration reform plan was never revived. And so I'm curious what you uh, what you think about how the war on terror uh, has, has maybe derailed what could have been a promising trend in immigration reform and and what impact it's had on migration just in general.
4: I mean, it had a huge, huge impact, and I think that what we want to recognize every time we talk about immigration in the U.S. is that the communities that are facing this lack of uh, structure, you know, we're accused of not having a paper that is given by the same government (laughs) that is accusing us of not having it, right? We also created this crisis, uh, but we don't have the political power, nor in Mexico, nor here, to fight for something that is fair. And guest worker programs work for both uh, economic uh, interests of both countries. I was just recently in, in Mexico last, last month, and what we saw is this tendency of seeing Mexico seeing guest workers coming to the U.S. as the heroes, even on the com- undocumented communities. We're the heroes because we feed money to, the, to Mexico, right? We're the ones that keep the infrastructure going. We're doing what the Mexican government is not doing by providing all these um, millions of dollars in, in, uh, in money that we send uh, back to Mexico yet um, we still don't we're not going to see a real reform that benefits the workers because to mexico it's it's really helpful that people come and work here and send money there so they're not going to do anything that it's going to impact that um Benefit that they have in the U.S., too, regardless of not having an immigration reform policy in all these decades, you know, the number of guest workers have, have increased. I also traveled uh, last year uh, to Mexico and I took an, a red eye flight. And, you know, 90% of the people flying, they were going back to Mexico from uh, doing the guest worker program for, throughout the year. They were going, going back in November and i i had this idea for many years and i worked with many farm workers for many years that the majority of guest workers coming from mexico came from the countryside well it turns out that's not anymore they come from the big cities too because there's more recruitment nowadays in mexico to get guest workers here program has ex, has expanded but what is not expanded is the rights of, of the, those workers to uh, be able to switch employers to um, have the same rights, labor rights that others uh, have while they're working in the U.S., um, they they don't have really literally nothing. They're uh, kidnapped by their uh, contractors and their employers when they're in the U.S. So that won't change because it benefits the economy here and it benefits the economy in in Mexico. So regardless of um, of of the U.S. and Mexico coming together and saying you know okay we're gonna we're going to talk more about the, the the economic situation and how do we support uh, Mexico Mexico migration. Uh, that is not really going to happen until we, the people, we have political power that we don't have yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to this idea that sure, a, a state or a municipality might feel like, oh no, we don't have enough, uh, we don't have enough beds for everyone who's in need. We can't help any more people, and yet, of course, we're the country of you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, right? On a macro level there, surely there is enough to go around. We've just got a really backward way of uh, of allocating it and recognizing need. That was Maru Mora Vialpando. She's founder of La Resistencia. She's a community organizer and immigrant activist. Maru, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Hey, John. Mediaite is scolding us. They're saying Trump's just come here to golf. Everyone should just chill out. Do you see this story? No. Simmer down, Trump's in DC to golf, not to get indicted, is their is their headline. <laughs> so they're saying, look, he's just so maybe we've uh
1: you know well, but I, I said to in my own defense, uh we're gonna have Jim Cavanaugh at one o'clock in just a couple minutes, and I say in my intro, is he here to golf? Yep. He's got the Loudoun County a uh, uh, golf uh, course where where he put. Do you remember that that bronze plaque that he put up saying that on this spot he hit a he hit a hole in one. No, no, no. Oh. It was the 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 Battle of the Potomac was fought, and the and that the Potomac ran red with the blood of of uh, soldiers from the North and the South. And uh, it's this big bronze plaque that's right there with a with a flag. You know, there's a flagpole and a flag. And historians have. Said there, there is no such thing as the Battle of the Potomac. Oh my gosh. Someone and, told him, and there's no evidence that any battle was fought there at this spot, let alone this battle called the Battle of the Potomac. It just never happened. Beautiful,
0: but <laughs> someone told him, "Oh, you got to buy this golf course. It's a historic site. Let right. put that
1: up or something."
0: <laughs> hey, also, uh, I wanted to mention we have talked, uh, we've talked a lot about how much money Democrats spend advertising and amplifying uh, the voices of far right candidates yes. who they think that they can beat more easily. Correct. The Washington Post has another story on that practice today. But I think the figure remains the same. Nineteen million dollars across eight states in primaries. If you add Illinois. Yes. How much that jumps up to. Uh Oh. It jumps to $53 million because the Democratic Governors Association and uh, Governor J.B. Pritzker spent a combined $34.5 million successfully elevating a GOP candidate who said it was appalling that party leaders in Illinois wanted Trump to concede the 2020 election. Oh, my God. More more than double the amount. I hear the music. We got to go. We're going to take a quick break on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
1: Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Donald Trump made an unannounced and unexpected trip to Washington yesterday, apparently on such short notice that he came off the plane still wearing his golf cleats. Rumors, of course, abound. Is Trump here to answer to an indictment? Is he here to play golf at his club in Loudoun County, which we're now hearing is probably maybe the case? but nobody in a position to know is talking. Nobody even knows where he's staying. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. The US Army on Friday made a recommendation for its soldiers who are struggling with high inflation. That recommendation is to apply for food stamps. Based on the Pentagon's own data, 24% of US soldiers are food insecure.
0: I don't know how I mean shocking. It, it seems to me really the the very best example of the way Uh, the the way we talk about ourselves versus the way we treat our people, right? Is this is the example of how the U S treats its soldiers, where it's like coupon from Denny's, you know, hero worship, but we're all supposed to stand up and clap or whatever. But actually when it comes down to really taking care of you, eh, apply for food stamps,
1: right? You're on your own. It appears that the joint comprehensive plan of action, the JCPOA also known as the Iran nuclear deal is floundering again. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said over the weekend that the latest statement by Tehran on the deal, quote, takes us backward, unquote, and Iranian foreign ministry spokesman said Tehran's latest statement was a constructive approach with the aim of finalizing negotiations. But Washington and the European Union said that the most recent Iranian demands are extraneous to the JCPOA and that there likely would be no deal before U.S. midterm elections. And yesterday was the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. After all these years, there are several alleged masterminds of that day still being held at Guantanamo, never having been charged with a crime. Why? Because the CIA tortured them. And so nothing of what they confessed can be used against them in a court of law. But that doesn't mean that any of them will ever be freed. They're likely to remain at Guantanamo for the rest of their lives, and according to the Senate torture report, when they die, they'll be cremated and their ashes will be thrown into the ocean. Why have none of the last four presidents done anything about this? We're joined by Jim Cavanaugh. He's the editor of thepolemicist.net. Good to have you back, Jim. Thanks for having me. Always happy to have you. Welcome back. Let's begin with Donald Trump. He quietly flew into Washington last night wearing golf shoes. He got into an SUV with blacked out windows and he drove away. Nobody seems to know why he's here or where he went. The Trump Hotel is no longer the Trump Hotel. Uh, Ivanka and uh, Jared Kushner sold their house in the Colorama neighborhood of town. I realize that we're all just speculating, but why do you think he's here in town? Now we're seeing this report that he's actually here just to play golf, which sounds kind of nuts to me. Um, But what do you
2: think? I have no idea. Really, <laughs> excuse me. This is a little bit like you know. Oh, what did Kim Kardashian wear today when she showed up and right. down in town on that? Little, where is she going? <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 the obsession with Trump here is he, he may be going to play golf. He may be going to you know the slaughter. Um, <laughs> you know, engage in. A serial killing
1: spree, I really have no idea to commemorate the uh, Battle of the Potomac.
2: Yeah, I didn't. Hotel uh, was no longer the Trump Hotel. Does that means it wasn't belong to him anymore? Do you sell it off?
1: Yeah, um, it, it's uh, it, it's part of the um, oh, not the Ritz Carlton, uh, the Waldorf Astoria. It's now a Waldorf Astoria hotel.
2: That's where uh, Ivana was living, anyway. Uh, but uh. Really, I have no idea what Donald Trump is doing
1: in this job season or in this tennis season. I wonder. Well, this morning, Trump's attorneys asked a federal judge to continue blocking the FBI from using classified files that were found at Mar-a-Lago until this special master had vetted them. The key here is that the FBI has already gone through the documents. The judge's order blocks the FBI and Justice Department prosecutors from using them against Trump. Until they're vetted. Uh, the Justice Department, of course, appealed this decision. I think it was Thursday afternoon. But what do you think this means for the investigation? Has it come to a halt? Or are they just sitting around at DOJ just waiting for the special master to finally make a, a decision?
2: They're sitting around waiting for the judge to make a decision as to whether they can continue the investigation. That's you no, know, it is. This is what Trump's people are doing, is trying to halt the investigation effectively. And they have for the moment, you know, and they want now. The situation is that the FBI has the documents. They of course have looked at them. Yes, but order of the tr- the order of the judge was that they have to. They cannot use them until the special master has gone through them. Right. The special master normally goes through in a normal case to see to look about attorney-client privilege, you know, which is done normally. And in this case, also. The judge said about it, whether there's there's an issue of executive privilege here, that's unprecedented because this is an unprecedented situation. Since you have a president who, at some level, has has the authority to declassify things, so it's very complicated legally. And the FBI, the Justice Department has has this motion, is for the judge judge to suspend the master, uh, to let them use things before the master's... The master of you is finished, yeah. and that's so this is what that's about. that's about. It. And you know, uh, I, I I have no idea what this investigation is going towards. You know, I'd be very, I'd actually still be very surprised there's uh, nothing been kind of serious criminal charges against Trump. This is a weird and, diff- and new situation, having a, uh, an ex president being investigated for holding classified documents and. I think the purpose of this investigation on both sides really is to keep it going, to keep the drama going and to to build up a case for for Democratic Oh, we're gonna get him this time, he's gonna be taking away half up and a case for the Trump constituency. Look what they're doing.
1: Yeah, I think there's something I think there's something to that. I think that Jim's right mm-hmm. that that both sides need for this to drag on for different reasons, of course. But I think that that the This comes down to a political decision where they're going to have to make a decision at the White House of whether or not they want to prosecute a former president. Mm -hmm. Right now, a decision was made in the in the 1975 White House that, no, they didn't want to prosecute Richard Nixon. And it was better for the country to move on by having President Ford Mm -hmm. uh, pardon Nixon. But the Biden administration is going to have to decide whether or not they want to prosecute him. If they don't want to prosecute him, do they want to just bar him from running for president again? And do they want to pardon him?
0: Yeah, I think also this benefits that it's benefits the Democrats much more clearly. I agree. uh, I think in a clear cut way to draw this out. Of course, it is bringing them to the the crucial decision, which I think could could really backfire, right? And I I wouldn't want to be in that decision. In terms of benefiting the Republicans, it's sort of interesting because I think. Uh, for for Trump supporters specifically, you know, this furthers their understanding of Donald Trump as someone who is a, a uniquely persecuted, yes. you know, and a, a sort of flashpoint yes. for all their uh, maybe even brand new uh, concerns about civil liberties, etc. For the party as a whole, I I feel like there might be uh, waning returns here because certainly what this does is activate a certain cohort of the Democratic base base who are college educated yeah. uh, news, you know, news junkies. Yes. Who who are really interested in this. This is not the majority of the United States, I don't think. I mean, it is true yes. that Joe Biden's sort of speeches um, b- talking about threats to democracy have been having some impact. But I think, you know, especially as we have this demographic shift happening between the parties, where you have the Democrats becoming a sort of uh, party of higher educated, higher wage earners and more people, uh, working people kind of defecting to the Republican party. I think honestly you are going to run out of, of uh, activation possibility. You know, when Mm -hmm. people are still looking at inflation, we're still wondering about energy prices. uh, There's a lot of, you know, kitchen table issues to to go on. And I think the sort of uh, personal travails of Donald Trump are going to, lose their potency at some point.
2: Yeah, there, there are diminishing returns. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Jim?
2: Well, I think it's, they're going to lose their potency for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I understand there is a certain—it's the same thing. In both camps, there's a certain group of people who are intensely interested in this and who can't get their minds out of Donald Trump. And uh, I don't think they're going to—you know, the question—the substantive question is the one you raised, whether somehow this is going to block Donald Trump from running, and I don't think it will. Uh, and, you know, I, I just think, again, this is, this is an issue that is not changing anything in the way Americans live right now and in what they're doing or what's happening in the world right now. And both parties like that fact that this is, this is something that, that gins up, uh, their base without having to really address how you change anything for the better. Uh, so I, I don't know. I just, I, you know, the, it's going to gin up and maintain support among that coterie of people and either who will consider themselves uh, either you know anti-Trump Democrats or pro-Trump MAGA people. Uh, but everybody else, you know, this is not a, There's nothing here that rings a bell. As you say, the kitchen issues. There's nothing here that strikes at the heart of Americans' lives today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to ask you about this uh, this Army Department of the Army recommendation. Uh, that soldiers apply for food stamps this this also happened during the reagan administration i recall i was surprised though to see that 24% of us soldiers are food insecure that's a shocking number to me um it seems crazy especially in light of the amount of money that we spend on national defense Um, Do you think this is a temporary situation? Is this really tied to inflation or is it an endemic problem? And how do you think the government will deal with it? Because we we can't over the long term have a quarter of our of our uh, uniformed military uh, wondering where their next meal is going to come from.
2: Well, you know, if the quarter of the military is wondering where their next meal is going to come from right now, that means that Consistently, they're wondering about a lot of things and where they're going to come from. Good point. And how bills are paid. Paid. You know. I mean, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's not a temporary. That's not a temporary situation. If you're on the edge of that at that level, you're on the edge all the time. So uh, this is a s- symptom of the fact that we don't take care of. You know, the military spending is about weapons procurement and it's about big contracts. And we're not taking care of the soldiers that we're supposedly relying on and honoring. And we, you know, people, everybody in the country should be protected from food insecurity. That's right. And health insecurity. You know, it's the only country where people, you know, go bankrupt because of medical bills and have their lives destroyed because of that. So this is part of that problem that is a permanent problem. And you see this little pimple of it popping up in the military in this one circumstance. But it's, you know, it's a pimple on a huge rash that's part of the American social social problematic.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I also wanted to ask you about the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Things for a while seem to be going well in negotiations, even though the negotiations have been indirect, right? We're not meeting one-on-one with the Iranians. we present our our ideas to the European Union and then they tell the Iranians what our ideas are and then the Iranians give their response and the European Union tells us what the Iranian response is it's like little children um anyway things seem to be going okay until a couple of weeks ago now the Iranians say that the US isn't serious about these negotiations and that the US says that the Iranians want to add extraneous issues to the deal these are these are issues that have nothing to do with the original JCPOA. Do you think that there is still a deal to be had or do you think this thing is dead?
2: Well, I've always said I don't think there will be a deal. Uh, mm. I, you know, I, I, I come down not 90%, but 60% on the side that there won't be a, that, that won't be a new deal uh, because there's just too much pressure. I mean, look, Obama did this. Credit to him for doing this. He did it against the wishes of People in his own party. Don't forget, Chuck Schumer, Guardian of Israel, was against the discreet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's so right. Now, if the Democratic Party were against it. Joe Biden, if he wanted to, well, this is where you see if the leader of the party and the party wanted to, Joe Biden could say, hey, Barack and I did this. What's the matter with the terrible Donald Trump? Yeah. One the yep. we don't, let's go back in it. But he doesn't want to do this. You know, if they wanted to, 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 Explain and promote this to the American people. They could, and they would win the win the argument, but they don't. Uh, And what you have instead, Israel has been for at least ten years pressuring the United States to attack Iran with them. They want the United States to lead an attack on Iran. That's not gone away. The the head of the Mossad came to Washington last week and said, "You can't do." They don't want them to do this Iran deal. Israel, the only nuclear country that is itching to attack Iran, and Using nuclear weapons, which they will do if there's an attack on Iran. I, I will state that a hundred times. I bet more than 60% certain. Of I would agree. Uh, and so Israel, and this is about, you know, again, the JCPOA is, is if you're really worried about Iranian nuclear weapons, JCPOA is a fine thing about that. It's not about that. It's about, you know, keeping the military pressure up on Iran and never, never treating Iran as a, as a normal country that deserves normal respect. The, the, the 2017, the CIA created, Pompeo created an Iran mission center in the CIA. Yes. Yes. They secretly negotiated agreement with, with the Israelis. That's a civil war rule, and that's been there in the CIA as a war planning room since 2017. So, you know, this is what this is about. The United States is obeying, uh, you know, heeding the pressure from Israeli and the Zionist, uh, the Zionist you know, proponents in the United States. And it's certainly, there's not going to be. The Israelis are saying today, there's not going to be agreement before the elections. That's certainly the truth. Nobody wants to have this on the table. That's something we talk about it. Uh, But they're also saying it's not gonna, We we've been told there's not going to be agreement. And I think at the end of the day, I hope there will be one, uh, but I doubt it. And I said this on Iranian TV a number of times. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I don't think the United States the politicians, Biden, Biden administration, you will know, buck uh, designed special
1: question to, uh, yesterday, Jim was the uh, 21st anniversary of the nine 11 attacks. And I couldn't help, but to think that the likes of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Abu Zubaydah, Ramzi Beneshib and others who are still in Guantanamo after all these years, only KSM has been charged with a crime. Uh, but he hasn't yet gone to trial and he's, he's been held for just over 20 years now. Uh, was a generation ago. Do you think any of these guys will ever see the inside of a courtroom?
2: I think it's a generation ago. (laughs) Oh, weird. Uh, I was about a half mile away. I was living about a half mile away at the time. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's, uh, no, they will never see the the inside of the courtroom. There's no legal proceeding that's going to be held against them. It's impossible. Uh and this is people have to recognize how strange this is. The United States went out in the world and gathered people up, uh often, very often on the basis of you know bad intelligence and just you know jealous neighbors uh performing against others. And then they went out and tortured them and got, of course, the answers that they wanted the torture wanted knew that they wanted the torture wanted to get. So you can't use this in a courtroom and they won't use it in a courtroom. And this is disgraceful. These people are uh, you know, prisoners of war in a war that never was declared and will never be over. And they're going to die without having any adjudication of their guilt or innocence of, of whatever crime the United States thinks it has the right to accuse them of being the guilt or innocence of. So uh, very few have anything to do, I with it's 9-11 itself, or it's the events of 9-11 itself. And it's really it's one of these things that you know everybody just forgets about. But This is the United States setting itself up as an international tyrant, really taking people up and keeping them locked up forever with no trial or justice.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, in the Senate torture report, when when they were talking about Abu Zubaydah, and I said this in the intro, uh, the CIA was very specific that they don't care if Abu Zubaydah is ever charged with a crime. They have zero intention of ever letting him see the outside uh, world again. And when he eventually dies, uh, they intend to cremate him and throw his ashes into the ocean. And that's what they have in mind for the rest of these guys too. My position has been very consistent, I'm proud to say. If these guys are as bad as we have always said that they are, and we have the proof of that, then charge them with a crime. And let them face their accusers in a court of law. Um, If not, and if if you can't because you've tortured them to collect all this information, you have to let them go. As bad as they might be, you have to let them go. And this is on the CIA for violating the law and for violating these guys' constitutional rights. But keeping them indefinitely in Guantanamo is in opposition to everything that we stand for as Americans. And, and we just, in my view, we just can't have this double standard. Either we're the good guys or we're not the good guys. And if we are the good guys, then we've got to let them go.
2: Yeah, and as I said, I wonder who was arrested and charged sure. with a crime over this torture stuff. Gee, yeah, it might have been someone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i, mean, yeah. I can... Only one person. Yeah, I, I, I congratulate you, John, <laughs> so I knew the one who went to tell about this. Not to let me yeah, claim to be able to about you. If they can prove something about bring you to court, they can bring these guys to court. That's right. It's just, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's above the law. It's above. Yeah, you know, we have an international rules-based order. It's above international law. It's above any conception of the um, yeah. And, and
1: yeah. Law. So true. So true. I have kind of an odd question for you too. Um, there have been a couple of different reports uh since yesterday. Uh one by a, a senior ESPN uh journalist who writes for other outlets as well, one from a, a conservative local news site in Wisconsin saying that they were f- they were censored by Facebook for posting the picture of the falling man, that I that iconic image of of the man falling from uh an upper floor of the World Trade Center. Uh Facebook said that the picture violated their ban on suicide photos, but then it allowed other news outlets to post the picture. So what's up with that? I, I can't make heads or tails of this kind of censorship.
2: Well, they're, they're censoring certain outlets. I mean, it's, you know, it's, even when they claim to be censoring certain kind of content for certain specific reasons, it doesn't work out that way this happens all the time if if Ukrainian media publish pictures of a of something that that's of a something that's blown up or a city that's been destroyed and russia to, Russia to, Russia today or uh, Sputnik media publishes the same thing they'll uh, they'll censor they'll eliminate it from the Sputnik one or they'll you know this is what happens all the time you know I post I got you know, Twitter jailed and Facebook jailed for posting just screenshots of CDC reports. Oh my god. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, no. You know, oh, you can't do that cuz cuz on my because I had vaccine skeptical stuff on my website or I might think so, therefore if I publish just a CDC report that says something, then that can't be on my site. You see what I'm saying? So this is why I, I I don't know why they did this for the uh for the uh falling man on very top about. Uh, and uh, but again, they know this is a this is a site, a right-wing website that they consider. They don't want this site uh to have an impact. Yeah. They want its impact. That's what they do. And they are making those decisions all the time. And they're based on, on none of the criteria. I mean, if you ask about why do you do this, they'll say something like it violates the rules, but they won't tell you what exactly the well, rules Yeah, are. they won't tell you what
1: the rules are. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I've been suspended by uh, Facebook twice and once I, I probably deserved it. I called Ted Cruz a whore and they suspended (laughs) me for a week. But the other time I put a, I put a video of, of a zip line in Brazil where you, you skim right above the, the trees in the jungle and it's, it's long and it's steep and I sent it to a Brazilian friend of mine and I said, the only caption I put was crazy Brazilians and they <laughs> suspended me for anti-Brazilian hate speech.
2: Oh, that was very This funny. is what we, yeah. what yeah. we oh, deal we with yeah. on
1: Facebook. Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: Forget his name. He, he, he would go out, you know, it, it was just before Ukraine too, before the Ukraine war, he would go out to like Nazi demonstrations and post? So people would know about them and post videos and pictures and stuff, and he was suspended for posting fa- fascist. <laughs> you know, he was doing this in order to let people know that there were Nazis out there, there were fascists out there. <laughs> so that's you know, th- this is the problem that you know th- that you cannot get into this. These organizations, these social media things, think they can make these distinctions. At the end of the day, you can't do that.
1: Indeed, you can't. Jim, um, I also want to ask you a little bit about politics. Polls across the country have been pretty consistent that the Democrats are expected to keep the Senate and Republicans are expected to keep the House. But The New York Times yesterday said that among women, including Republican women, inflation and the economy are not important issues. They don't appear in the top five of important issues for women. They are women are far more concerned about abortion. Again, including Republican women, the article concluded that House races are going to be far tighter than the polls might lead us to believe at this early stage. Still, you know, some what uh, eight weeks out, seven weeks out and that the Republican Party's leadership doesn't get that yet. Do you agree? How do you think this plays out? Do you think abortion um, is going to have an impact on on voting among Republican women?
2: Yes, I think it's gonna have an impact upon voting among all women. I think the abortion rights issue is in a spot where it can it can and should and I hope will use uh, the the bind that the anti-abortion rights movement has gotten itself into. People do not want to criminalize women who have an abortion. State Senate, the state representative from South Carolina, I don't know if you saw this last week, was practically buying, saying. I voted for this heartbeat bill. But then there's this 19-year-old girl who's got a seven or ten ten week old fetus that's dying in her, and she's going to have to carry it. Yes. She's going, I did not want this girl. She's going to go to jail. I don't want this girl. So there's millions of them. I mean, I I just wrote an article about this fact called Let Will Go Winning Abortion Rights. Pro-life organizations put out statements last week saying, we represent 10 million pro life people. We are unequivocally opposed to criminalizing women who have abortions. We, that, we consider that not pro life. So you have, this is and this is the argument that the abortion rights movement should be making to everybody. The only question you ask is what's the, what's the penalty for one has abortion? And they have put the, 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 the hardcore, what they call abolitionist abortions, the, they've had these laws, they have these bigger laws. So you have millions of people who have been out at anti-demonstrations uh, uh, for years saying we got to make abortion illegal who don't realize what the consequences are uh, what's the penalty and the, the people who do want that to happen have put those laws in uh, on the books and they're penalizing women so you have women being accused of murder for take for eliminating from her body uh, uh, an organism that doesn't have a skull that is dead i know woman personally who have to carry around for two months before row before this decision, while Roe, Roe was still in effect, because it was after six months, she had to carry around the dead yes. fetus. In her, in her. So you have to say, this is what, this is the point, and every woman's now understanding is what do you mean you're going to put me? They're, Nebraska, they put a woman for, they put, they brought felony charges against the, the girl who had an abortion, yes. and, and the woman who got pills, her mother, who went and got pills, it wasn't a, a medical or a surgical abortion. It was a, Using pills. So this is people are now facing the fact that, and this is a this is this is having an effect. I think, and will have an effect. It's the best thing that happened to the Democrats.
1: We are going to leave it there. That was the voice of Jim Cavanaugh. He is the editor of the thepolemicsist.net. Thanks for joining us, Jim. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we'll be back after this next short break.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And John, sorry, I have to tell you about this story that I just encountered. There was a time in my life when I might have said uh, something as offensive and inflammatory as, I hate dentists. (laughs) And I've come a long way since then. I don't hate dentists. I kind of like my current dentist. Uh, but it is such a it's such an awful process for so many Americans to go through, to go to you dread going to the dentist because you don't really know what might be wrong. It's incredibly expensive. Incredibly. You know, you can go around getting second opinions because even just a basic dental visit costs so much money. And so you just are, you know, living your life in terror of being. Um, and I used to cry all the time at the dentist because like everything you learn, it's like, oh, God, that's five hundred dollars that I don't yeah. have. Yeah. Um there is this story out of France about a French dentist he's been jailed now uh he was deliberately this is how the guardian describes it deliberately mutilating patients from low income neighborhoods in Marseille in a money making scheme so they'd come in these patients would come in they'd have like a loose crown or something he'd be like yeah okay i'll fix that but i've also got to yank out these other teeth for no reason absolutely perfectly fine healthy te- teeth and uh, then he could defraud France's social security system. Oh, my. god. And so he forced these patients to undergo unnecessary procedures showing total disdain for their health and then reaping social security payments. Wow. He's accused of performing... Almost 4,000 root canals on more than 300 patients who had no medical need for it in six years. Oh, my Ooh, God, it's terrible. All right. Sorry, I won't go on any longer. That just caught my eye. And I wanted to tell you, we are actually going to talk about something uh, a lot more serious. Yes. You know, sorry for the abrupt transition on Friday. We mentioned the launch of the Walk for Justice for Leonard Peltier, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I had said I'd hoped we could talk about this in a little bit more detail, and this is the first of, of, I think, I hope, uh, several conversations about it. We are going to talk uh, about that effort and about why, perhaps, uh, there is some more reason to hope than there has been in past years that Peltier will finally see the outside of a prison. Joining us to get into this is South Dakota State Senator Troy Heiner. Troy, thank you for being here.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So uh, last week, we commented on this walk underway right now from Minnesota to Washington, D.C. Uh, it's supposed to arrive in Washington in November to ask President Biden to grant clemency to Leonard Peltier, who has served 46 years in prison after an error-ridden trial and a parole process so egregiously unfair that the U.N. Human Rights Council just this year called for him to be released immediately and given the right to compensation and reparations. It concluded this—again, a U.N. Human Rights Council report—concluded that basically Peltier remains in prison because he was Native American. And I feel like uh, going into detail uh, on what made his trial such a fiasco would take some time, but I would like to set the stage. And so I wonder, uh, Troy, if you can give our listeners just sort of an outline of the misconduct that these reports refer to uh, and, you know, why Leonard Peltier remains at the front of people's minds and why so many people call him a political prisoner.
5: Well, I I think it it goes uh, much further than even the trial um you have to you have to go back and and think about uh what it means to be an indigenous person, especially in you know the late sixties early seventies, and uh that relationship that we had with the federal government uh and that we still have with the federal government and the view of uh american Indians by by the general public um, I think uh, oftentimes we're we're viewed in historical contexts. Um, and, you know, you can only oppress uh, a a certain group of people for so long before, you know, something is going to happen. And, you know, in the early 70s, late 60s in South Dakota, um, you know, American Indian people were uh, as oppressed as, you know, any uh, group of people, and and that hadn't really changed, you know, since uh, 1492. So that's where it really starts. And when the trial happened, you know, uh, is two uh, uh, the the other two people that uh, they
0: were acquitted. Yes. And to interject, I think the other two people were uh, Leonard Peltier was convicted of aiding abetting aiding and abetting a, a murder, right? But the two people who were accused of actually committing the murder. Were acquitted, and so you get Peltier on on these charges. Of, if I understand correctly, of, of aiding and abetting two people who were not convicted for of a crime,
5: correct? Mm-hmm. And, which doesn't make any sense. And it goes, but you have to look back at, at what life was like on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, you know, in 1975, and the level of distrust, the the level of you know uh, shenanigans that the government was pulling um you know putting in informants you know uh, putting in agitators um, you know it it was a volatile volatile time uh to be in and uh, you know in, in in
0: the 70s and there have been questions raised about yeah as you say before the trial you have to take into account the uh, environment on the Pine Ridge Reservation uh, there were some serious questions raised about the extradition process that uh, Peltier went through questions raised about the uh, reliability of uh, witness, who was a key aspect of uh, the case against him, who was uh, mentally unstable and unreliable. Uh, A lot of questions about the appeals process and about, you know, why why he continues to be denied parole. So, you know, it's it's as you say, it's it's much greater than there was a mistake made at trial. It's every aspect of this process points to a process uh, that is about making someone a scapegoat. And then just sort of covering up the fact that that you've made him a scapegoat uh, for for decades now. Um, I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how Leonard Peltier is is doing in prison now. He's he just turned seventy eight years old uh, recently. Uh, what is his health like? Uh,
5: he's struggling. Uh, you know, from reports that that we've heard um, that uh, you know his his health is deteriorating. Um, you know, American Indians have. A lot of health disparities, anyway, uh, and, and you know, in confined environments, um, it's those seem to be exacerbated. So, um, you know, it at at his age for uh, some of the health issues that he has, um, you know, I, I think clemency is is appropriate. We don't have to retry the whole case, but uh, just looking back at uh, where he's at, what. The time that he has served uh, for the crime that he was accused of and, you know, his his current health outlook, um, you know, it's time that he'd be released.
0: So talk to us about why uh, maybe there is a chance that these calls for clemency might be heard. Uh the Democratic National Committee's Resolutions Committee recently unanimously approved a resolution asking Biden to consider clemency for Leonard Peltier. And the resolution says that, you know, he, he is an ideal candidate for leniency for all the reasons you mentioned, and that the president should use his clemency powers to release him uh, and those serving unduly long sentences. Uh, it also notes that Given the overwhelming support for clemency, the constitutional due process issues underlying uh, his prosecution, his status as an elderly inmate and that he's an American Indian who suffers from greater rates of health disparities and underlying health conditions. These are all, uh, you know, further reasons for President Biden to use that clemency power. And now, you know, the we talk to on this show, people who are um, critical of of the Biden administration and its uh, outreach to Native communities in the United States and also to people who find uh, some things to be happy about. But certainly uh, the Biden administration has at least uh, made an effort to talk a lot more about the need for outreach, to talk a lot more about the need for things like uh, real robust tribal uh, consultation. And, you know, has has taken some steps to ensure uh, representation at high levels. Uh, and so I wonder how significant you think it is that you have the democratic national committee calling for clemency and, uh, whether you think that maybe, uh, maybe the Biden administration will take this step as part of, you know, it's, it's efforts to try to, uh, improve relationships with native communities.
5: Sure. You know, I think this is as good a time as we've ever had, uh, for clemency uh, for Mr. Beltier, um you know the the Biden administration has from what I've seen, he uh, they're trying to uh, right some of the wrongs that happen to us as Indian people. and you know putting people in in key positions that understand that American Indian uh, perspective or experience uh, is, is key to that. I think he, he does understand uh, the unique relationship that we have with the federal government. Uh, You know, no other class of people has that kind of relationship uh, that American Indian people have with the federal government. Um, And I I think, um, you know, I'm I'm hoping that President Biden is finally able to say, you know, all of the things that happened, uh, you know, during that time, you know, during the second occupation of Wounded Knee, um, if there uh, we can come to some resolve uh, for that because you know some of those issues have never been have never been dealt with, and you know the the health disparities, the the poverty, the uh, you know the lack of resources. Um, as far as you know, our roles in, in this process, um, you know, there have been many. Uh, senators and representatives from uh, you know Native American states uh, that that have used our power or you know our education to uh, kind of inform the, the public that you know uh, Leonard Peltier is still in prison for a, for a crime that you know I'm not sure uh, that would be he would be convicted today. Yeah, um, considering. Considering what was happening in Pine Ridge, uh, you know, during that time, so you know, we, we all have to fight this as as warriors. Uh, you know, we we started out, uh, at, at, you know, marching and and uh, taking over, uh, trying to take back, uh, you know, who we were. And now there's enough of us uh, that are in some positions that uh, can. They they always told us, go get educated and help your people. Well, now there's a bunch of us who have, and here we are. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I wanted to talk also about, you know, I mean, uh, we mentioned the the conclusion of the DNC. We mentioned the conclusion of uh, the U.N. Human Rights Council. I wonder uh, about the role uh, international organizations have played and, and could continue to play in drawing attention to uh, Leonard Peltier's plight, and also to discrimination against Native people in the U.S. Do you think—I mean, I guess it's two questions, right? One, how how significant is it, I suppose, in just a, you know, sense of getting some sort of uh, moral support, and then also, you know, do these kinds of statements from recognized international bodies actually help? help really push and help achieve results?
5: I think they do. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about the DNC, you know, uh, adopting that that resolution, you know, that was a huge, huge step. Uh, you know, I'm, of course, there. Uh, you know, many people in the DNC had no idea that this had happened. Had had uh, no frame of reference as to, you know. Uh, what was going on, and and what is going on with uh, within the lives of of uh, American Indians? Um, so that was a huge step for them to say, and what what's right is right. Um, we're going to uh, ask for clemency uh, for Leonard Peltier, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the UN to recognize that. You know they they go all over the world and see uh, cases of. You know, uh, political prisoners and and people being locked up for uh, for things that um, maybe are are difficult to talk about and could be embarrassing for for a government. Um, and you know, people are locked up and like, throwing the key away. And uh, so when when they also recognize that. Uh, that Mr. Beltier is, is in that same boat, um, I think they probably have a pretty good frame of reference of what they're talking about. So what it does for the for the groundswell of people or, you know, for the grassroots people is uh, always, it kind of re-energizes us and makes us remember that, hey, he was fighting for us, um, you know, back in the 70s. He need to be there for him now.
0: I also wanted to ask about the role of the uh, American Indian Movement Grand Governing Council in this effort and, and ask about what kind of work the council is doing nowadays. And if, if there is another sort of organization to take on the, the mantle of the, the AIM of the 70s.
5: You know, I, I guess uh, maybe I'm not the, the best person to talk to uh, about that mm-hmm. because I don't have a, a, a lot of contact. Um, you know, my contact is is with uh, kind of the old gamers, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, the ones that are still around, you know, the ones that were at the occupation, uh, the ones that have told me the stories about, you know, the struggles that that they were going through and, and why they chose to fight, um, because it it was the last straw. It, it was all they could do. Um, so, you know, I I think when you. When you talk about aim and and what it represents, um, there's still lots of us that that recognize that uh we cannot if if we give up um, then they want mm-hmm. and the whole goal um for uh for hundreds of years was to assimilate us, and that's not what we've not what we've ever wanted. And that's not what we're going to do. And if if we give up, then that means they won. I don't think we're ready to do that.
0: I also, uh, Senator Heiner, I wanted to ask you, I know the last time we spoke to you on the show, we were talking about your effort to have uh, the medals of honor awarded for the Wounded Knee Massacre uh, revoked. And I wondered if you could give us an update on that effort.
5: So we were finally able to pass that in the South Dakota Senate, um, you know, after three years and um, we finally were able to pass a resolution and that's our process to petition the the federal government. Um, So as far as I know, it's, it's sitting, uh, you know, in DC and and waiting to be acted upon or waiting for a Senator to, uh, to bring that up. I I know that there's some uh, like the respect act and, and some other uh, possible legislation uh, that that's just waiting for a hearing. Um, but it, I think that also goes to my earlier point of, you know, that was December of 1890.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And in this country, we still cannot say that Wounded me was wrong. And we can't say it loud enough to say they should not have been awarded Medals of Honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still can't say that out loud. And that is, is that piece that we'll never give up. You know, those, those memories are still alive in our community of what happened in December of eighteen ninety. and uh, in, in 70, in 73, um, you know, that's where those feelings came back. And now in 2022, you know, here we are. We're still we're still fighting. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you can't say, you know, with with decisioning and clarity that that massacre uh, more than a century ago uh, that included the massacre of, of women and mm-hmm. children, if children. you can't say that's wrong, how 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 uh, you know, do you expect to be able to say that some what happened? Uh, it, you know, what is happening today is wrong. Right. It does to some degree i think have to start with with history and understanding our history a little bit more truthfully and completely
5: i completely agree i mean that's uh, when when you go to the wounded knee burial site and you look at that and you look across at that creek and those hills and it i mean it to this day you still feel that sadness that just hangs in the air there um you know it's a tough place and if we can't if we can't even reconcile over that you know i don't know where we're supposed to go it 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 has to be it has to be brought up you know i don't blame i don't blame anybody that's alive today for what happened in 1890 but i can surely say that if you can't recognize it then you're part of the problem not the solution
0: yeah, that was South Dakota State Senator Troy Heinert. Troy Heinert, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
5: Well, thank you for your time and thank you for bringing this topic up.
0: Yeah, thank we hope we hope to come back to it uh, as this walk is ongoing. It's it's really important. So yeah, th- thank you. Maybe we'll talk to you again in the future, John. I think we can. Uh, I think we can skip this last break. There are a couple of headlines that have yeah. caught my eye. I don't know. If, I mean, I've told you the story of the the terrible French dentist. Did you also see? And uh, this is something that I think. Uh, It would be interesting to get into um, later this week. But did you see that the New York Times has a a, over the weekend had a huge expose on um, what it terms as uh, New York State allowing many of its young people to be failed when it comes to education because of their sort of uh, support for and uh, and. Turning a blind eye to Hasidic schools that simply do not provide any kind of education for the the modern world.
1: This has been an ongoing theme. Mm -hmm. A lot of these Hasidic schools um, turn out students who can't read and write. Uh, They can recite the Torah from memory, but they're just not equipped to enter society. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: and it combines. I mean, it's a really devastating report. It being, you know, brings up a lot of uh, difficult issues, issues to talk, you know, like freedom of religion gets gets tossed around as a justification to mm-hmm. do all kinds of things, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so what is infringing upon people's freedom of religion and what is also saying, no, we have a we have decided that children have the right to an education and education has to meet certain uh, you know, certain thresholds, right? You have to meet certain basic standards. Right. It doesn't count what you're providing these children as an education, according to the American government. Um, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it's it's either tricky or it's extremely straightforward. And we're just, uh, you know, the I mean, these schools shouldn't... The way they manage to get public funding is fascinating for me. Um, but you something know, I, to get into a little more, but sort of coincides with... We we didn't mention this earlier in the show, but of course, New York State de- declaring a state of emergency over polio, which again has been linked to uh, religious communities right. that oppose vaccination. Uh, And also, you know, travel between some of these communities, uh, creating an environment where uh, these diseases that we sort of consider to be eradicated can thrive. And again, you know, you live in a you live in a society with a lot of people who don't share your views. What are your responsibilities when it comes to public health and public education?
1: Yeah, that's Mm. right. I've told you in the past, I I grew up in Amish country in uh, in West Central Pennsylvania and. You know, over the years, the Amish have dealt with a lot of these issues as well. You see, one room Amish schoolhouses, but those Amish kids go to school every day, and they learn how to read and write, and they learn the same kinds of skills, you know, cooking and whatever, sewing that uh, that their parents learned. They're able to become uh, productive members of society, even if their culture is insular. Uh, there's no reason why. Anybody should go to school in this country and then come out of it not knowing the most basic things uh, like reading and writing.
0: Yeah. And probably what you will also find, as you often do, is that people are enriching themselves by, you so, know, by, um, uh, you know, di- diverting money that could be going to educate absolutely. kids. Uh, and yeah. So uh, really interesting. And The New York Times really uh, coming pretty squarely <laughs> for yeah. these communities. Um, also, I have an update on insulin. Um, I'd love to hear it. Well, it's not good. I, I, One of the news podcasts that I listened to this morning had mentioned something about insulin. But it's really just that, of course, the, the Inflation Reduction Act that passed uh, a couple weeks ago, whenever that was, that included price caps on insulin for, for people in certain Medicare cohorts, not for the general public. That was left out uh senator chuck schumer has promised that there will be a vote on insulin price price caps for private markets uh but the latest headlines are that it, it, it is seeming like that vote might get pushed off the schedule because the senate is just so busy the house yeah. has passed uh the house has passed a, a bill on price caps already schumer Promised last month that the Senate would vote on it, uh, but two sponsors of the legislation to cap insulin prices are saying, "We don't and, know where we don't know where the the movement is. There seems to be bipartisan support for this. Where
1: where is yeah, the vote? Where's the tie up? Yeah. And you know the the sad thing is we're at the end of the term.
0: Well, yeah, that's why they might get it might, they might run out of time to yeah, vote on it,
1: and then it'll have to start at square one again uh, in the new Congress.
0: And of course, while this bill does have a uh, has a Republican backer, you know, bipartisan support might be stretching it a little bit. Republicans have uh, pretty consistently voted against anything like price caps. It is outrageous uh, how much more expensive insulin is in the United States and elsewhere. I think I saw the price of insulin in the last 20 years has increased by 600 percent.
1: It's like the price of EpiPens. You know, I used to pay a buck. For my EpiPen. Mm-hmm. And now the, with insurance, I pay 120 bucks. Uh Without insurance, it, it's $600 for an EpiPen.
0: I mean, you know who, who was involved in that?
1: Oh, yes, indeed. Our buddy Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin's family. daughter mm-hmm. is the CEO of the company that makes EpiPens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Not good. Yeah. Yeah. So what else is going on in the news? Oh, it was actually... You- Go ahead.
0: Oh, did you see that? Uh, Pramila Jayapal got so they came after her for her nine eleven tweet because it included in the death toll the hijackers. the hijackers. Like anyone in her office knew that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I went and read the tweet because the headline is uh, after, you know she deletes a tweet after remembering terrorists among those killed on nine eleven, and I was like, yeah, you know what? I mean. I think if you said, like, let us remember all the victims and also the poor men who were manipulated into doing this terrible act, I would have thought, yeah. oh, yeah, that's not smart. But of course she didn't do anything like that. No. It was just not like 2,977 versus 2,996 or something like that. Come on. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's always something. You know, I read a, a, a tweet the other day from, I don't even remember who it was, it was some conservative. Uh, Journalist um, saying that uh, it's unfair for Democrats to complain about policies that President Trump had uh, had pushed because we don't complain about the squad and the policies that the squad wants to impose. Who doesn't complain about the squad? It's like what are
0: you talking about? All they—that's all day long complaining about the squad. All day
1: long, and the squad's not leading the country. Yeah, you know. It's not leaving the country. No. I've had it.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty great, John. Oh, I just had something announced. Uh, it's, oh, we've forgotten. We've forgotten that we should have been doing two hours of uh, Queen Elizabeth watch.
1: Oh, yeah, for The Queen's
0: coffin making its way. It is actually, <laughs> I mean, like, I saw a headline. It is actually disruptive, right?
1: Oh, yeah. A, the whole country's like, ground to a halt. There's
0: a morning period where oh, people yeah. aren't going to be able to get Uh, surgeries and things, you know, Canada's got to reprint all its money. There's going to be a a new national holiday. Yeah. Yeah,
1: It's not just Canada. It's, it's all of these Commonwealth countries that have the queen on their, on their currency. Mm -hmm. They all have to print new money now. Mm -hmm. And it's something apparently that, that you don't just wait until the old money with her face on it wears out. They've got to like burn it and produce new money with, King okay, that's right. Now
0: I support it. I want to go to the money bonfire. Can you imagine how much fun that would be? Even if you know it's like it is worthless and there's new money in circulation, still be really. How powerful would you feel just throwing bills on a bonfire? Wow. Actually, never mind. Now I support wall-to-wall coverage of the Queen's death if I can go and take part in one of those giant bonfires well we'll have to come back to uh to queen elizabeth coffin watch tomorrow we've yeah. we've
1: fallen down on. she's our... still in scotland
0: <laughs> we've fallen down today uh i think we're gonna have to leave it there john want to say Sounds good. thanks to all of our guests who joined us thanks to our producers and engineers and on behalf of john kiriaku and myself michelle witte thanks to all of you for listening we'll see you tomorrow